it's some of the sweetest worship experience, isn't it? Just to get to talk to the people um, at church, to do a little bit more than just kind of quickly pass each other in the hallway or to have a quick conversation on coffee, but actually to greet one another, uh, to be seen, to be known, for, even if for just a moment, right? To have somebody go, I recognize you, or if I don't recognize you, I'd like to be able to recognize you in the future. Um, is there something about um, being known, being recognized, um, being understood for who you are and the context that you're in, that every little conversation here at church, whether it's um, here during a Sunday service, whether it's in the coffee hour, whether it's being invited into someone's home for an open house, or um, <clears throat> in a small group as you meet during the week, it, it's those connections and that sense of embeddedness in being known that I think answers one of the deepest longings in our heart. Um, it also, I think, answers one of the deepest longings in Jesus' heart, uh, which is where the passage will take, that, take us today. And so um, let me pray for us as we get started. Lord Jesus, we desire to see you. Um, we desire to see you as we sing um, songs that express truths that um, our minds, hearts, and souls um, desire to believe and desire to communicate, even if part of us falters today. Um, we desire to see you as we um, recite a creed and remind ourselves how over centuries the church has said, this we know to be true, <clears throat> and that holds us up when we are less certain about it. Um, we desire to see you uh, as we take communion later, reminding us who you are, what you've accomplished, and what you offer us. And then we uh, long to see you <clears throat> as we study the scriptures today. Um, so to you be the honor and glory forever. Amen. Um, you can tell by my, um, the odd tone I have in my voice, and probably by the way I will start hacking halfway through um, the sermon. Uh, I come to you a little sick today. My entire family has had an upper respiratory thing going on now, I think for two or three weeks. And just as one of us gets clear, uh, I suspect it's the children, those living vectors, um, bring in something new, and because they like to snuggle with you, they turn to you and cough in your face, which unleashes a new round, and so it's been going back and forth. My wife actually um, is on antibiotics because of pneumonia that she picked up because the coughing has gone on so long, um, so we're a sick and depleted family. <clears throat> Thanks be to God, my parents are staying with us, and so they're picking up all the slack, and of course are picking up the germs, so I think we're going to send them home right as they uh, begin to manifest. Um, <laughs> So that's a quick update on how we're doing in my family. I'll try not to shake anybody's hand after service. <clears throat> I was struck um, as I was reflecting on today's uh, scripture passage um, on how deeply we desire to be known and how God desires to be known, how difficult it is to do that when I was um, sort of mouthing uh, verse 3 of the second hymn that we sang. I was mouthing it because I couldn't quite actually manage pitch with the voice I have today. But... Um, I don't know if it caught any of you as we were singing this tune, which otherwise was so hopeful and so encouraging, but we sang these words. When life's dark maze I tread, and griefs around me spread, be thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to, away, bid darkness turn to day, wipe sorrow's tears away, nor let me ever stray from thee aside. And now for some of us, we're seeing that as a kind of general aspiration, but I suspect some of us walk in uh, to service today, and every one of those words actually resonate, and that isn't as much a nicely sung hymn as a, a deep cry from your heart. Uh, 
I feel like I'm in a dark maze today. Or uh, griefs are heavy and they surround me. Um, I'm, I feel a little bit like I'm in darkness or experiencing sorrows and tears. Uh, or I'm just keenly aware of how easy it is for me to stray today. And what I appreciate about um, this hymn is it's ruthless honesty about our condition, right? That we don't walk in um, to service frequently, or maybe many of us do, but some of us walk into service not with deep excitement, joy, um, and hope, but actually we come crawling to church, um, longing to meet Jesus, longing to be met by the people of Jesus, <clears throat> and hear a word from Jesus. And the difficulty is sometimes he startles us because he doesn't meet us like we want him to meet us. That the deepest longing of our heart doesn't always manifest in how Jesus meets us because he meets us on his own terms and not on our terms. And it's challenging to us and it's difficult. And I think that's a little bit what happens to the disciples here in Luke 9, you'll remember last week, Dick was preaching on the transfiguration. A smaller group of the disciples go up with Jesus up to the mountain. All of a sudden, they have this revelation of who Jesus is, right? He's revealed in some of his glory and his power. His beauty and his splendor are made known to them, and they hardly know what to do with themselves. Peter's just like, let's, let's preserve this moment so that we can come back to it. We'll build you a tabernacle so that you can dwell here just like God used to dwell among the Israelites, and they see the Old Testament prophets come together testifying to Jesus, witnessing to him and instructing him on what's going to happen next. And then finally you have the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. If you have any doubt about who Jesus is, this is my son. And then I'm calling you to do one thing, listen to him. Pay attention to what he says, what he does, and who he is, because in him is everything I want to communicate to you about myself. And as soon as they hear the instructions, they understand who Jesus is, and they hear God's command, listen to him, it all ends. And then you have this bizarre story that we had read to us this morning, right? So they come down off the mountain, and the next day, um, a large crowd gathers around him, and a man in the crowd calls out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and suddenly he screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. I mean, think about the situation there, right? God has revealed himself in his power. He's spoken. Jesus is revealed in all of his majesty. And as soon as he re-enters the crowd, this man comes up. This is my only son, my beloved son. And he's being destroyed by the spirit. Now think about... Um, Thanks, Dick. Uh, think about this father's experience. Oh. If you're a parent, you know that nothing leaves you more vulnerable. Nothing leaves you um, more completely at the mercy of something outside of yourself than the, even the thought of your child being at risk. Which is why so often in um, TV shows and movies, right, when... Um, the writers are at a loss for what to do, and they need to ratchet up the emotional intensity. They will um, put a small child in danger, right? Because that's the way that they know every parent in the audience, anybody with a heart, will suddenly find themselves vulnerable. Um, 
it's a cheap piece of manipulation, but it, it preys on um, our deepest tendencies. You're a father holding your only son who's being destroyed. In the larger economic scheme of things, it's not just emotionally that you're destroyed, but if this is your only son, then if you live in Palestine at the time, it's your sole hope as a family for survival. I mean, purely at an economic level, you're depending on healthy children to survive old age because when you're unable to work, the family would have to pick up, up the slack. But it's also an issue of your immortality, right? If your only son is being destroyed, it means your family is going to end. And so this man comes desperate emotionally, socially, economically to Jesus. And he says these telling words. I beg your disciples to drive out this demon, <clears throat> this evil spirit, but they could not. Now, this is actually somewhat disconcerting. Because at the beginning of chapter 9, the disciples were given authority to cast out demons, and they did. They were wandering around casting out demons, healing people. And so what's changed so drastically in the experience of the disciples that what they were able to do at the beginning of chapter 9, they seem unable to do here at the middle of chapter 9. And then Jesus confirms that something is going terribly wrong when given the invitation from this man, will you heal my child because your disciples cannot? Jesus replies, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So who is Jesus describing as this perverse and unbelieving generation? Is it the crowd and the father? It may be, right? Because there have been places in the gospels where Jesus seems to say, because of the unbelief in the city around him, right? Especially in his own hometown, Capernaum, he could do no miracles. Um, they didn't have enough faith, enough trust and belief in him to do that. But it, what strikes me is the father knows to bring the child to Jesus, the father knows that Jesus actually can do what nobody else can do, so it doesn't seem like he's responding to the father's lack of faith. I think he might be responding to his own disciples, right? I mean, think about Jesus' experience for just a second. He's been on the mountaintop, not that metaphorical one, like, you know, we were on a retreat. It was like a mountaintop experience. Everything was sweet. I mean, he was actually on the mountaintop, right? He was revealed in all his glory. The Old Testament prophets come and acknowledge um, who he is. God's voice reminds him and everyone else, you're my beloved son, right? Don't have no doubts about this. Everybody else listen to him and he comes down and what he finds is his disciples unable to do something so simple and so basic that they've been doing before. It doesn't surprise me that he says, look, you perverse. Um, unbelieving generation, how long I'm going to be, am I going to be with you? Because actually he knows how long he's going to be with them. He knows his time is running short and there's ISIS. If he weren't divine, I think there'd be a low-level panic. It's come to this, right? This is as far as we've gotten. They can't do it. I think it's the disciples because if you look at, it's the only natural response for Jesus and every other story at the remainder of chapter 9 which we won't look at today, but you certainly should pay attention to, the disciples keep failing. It's failure after failure after failure with them. And so I think Jesus looks at his own disciples and he says, look, you perverse and unbelieving generation, what am I going to go do? What am I going to do with you? I don't have enough time for this. So what's changed for them? 
Why are they unable to do what they're able to do at the beginning of chapter 9? Well, if you look at the flow of chapter 9, everything has changed since the beginning of chapter 9 for the disciples. They were sent out on mission. When they come back, all of a sudden, when Jesus goes, who do you think I am? Peter says, um, I think you are God's Messiah. And they're beginning to get a better bead on who Jesus is. Immediately after that, Jesus says, I'm not just the Messiah who you think is going to come to overturn the Roman Empire and bring back uh, Israel's kingdom. I'm the one who's going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And the disciples are a little dumbfounded. And then, G then God verifies who Jesus is and commands the disciples to pay attention up the mountain, confirming to them he's not crazy. He really is not only the Messiah, but he's come to die. Which is why I think the disciples desperately needed that experience on the mountaintop to confirm what Jesus has just told them. And for them, all of a sudden, everything is now different. Jesus can't be reduced to a political radical who means to redistribute everything in, the, uh, in Judea so that the Jews are once again in charge. He's not just a miracle-working, touchy-feely teacher of love who merely loves the down and out. He's all of that, and he's something profoundly more. He's a God who intends to conquer, not by power, but by weakness. He's a God who tends to bring healing, not just by words of power, but actually allowing his own body to be broken. He's a God who intends to deal with our deepest experience of sin by becoming sin for us. He's everything that they were hoping for and nothing like they were expecting. He's everything they were horrified to hear and what they desperately needed. And so I think for the disciples, it's almost as if they're starting from square one again. We thought we could be ambassadors of that kingdom that we had hoped about, right? A kingdom that comes in power, that's using these miracles to rise up a popular rebellion here in Israel to overthrow the Roman rule in this area. Um, this guy who's actually going to feed all of us and heal us, it's going to be excellent and fantastic and awesome. And when they hear who Jesus actually is, who he reveals himself to be, it's going to be through brokenness and weakness, not by strength. It's going to be by becoming sin to cure your sin. It's going to be by losing this fight that we're actually going to win it. They're unable, it seems, to be a messenger of that kingdom. And their faith fades away to the extent that when they could have cast out demons before, they can't manage to do it now. All of us experience that, don't, though, don't we? We encounter a Jesus that at one point or another isn't actually what we hoped he would be for us. I was just uh, last weekend speaking um, at our fall conference for downstate New York and New Jersey for InterVarsity. We had about 500 students gathered at Lake Champion. And it was fascinating the number of different types of conversations we kept running into that people were surprised about who Jesus was. Um, I, I, I was kind of guest speaking at a variety of places. Uh, they didn't assign me to a single track because I was coming in from Cornell that night. But um, I, we were in a, a session on human sexuality, and um, there were at least five different variations of the question. So my boyfriend and I love each other. We're committed to each other. And why isn't that the equivalent of being married? Right? One person actually said, we've exchanged secret vows together because we don't have enough money to get married. Why isn't that enough? Isn't that uh, marriage in the eyes of God? And what we said was, um, it's interesting to us that you're calling him your boyfriend and not your husband, even in the question. You know there's something 
that isn't sufficient here, right? But it was clear by all of those questions from people who I'm convinced love Jesus, that they liked the Jesus that brought healing and hope to them, but were radically challenged by a Jesus who said, I'm actually Lord over every aspect of your life. And there are a large number of things I'm going to ask you to do that will make no sense to you, will not actually be enjoyable to you, but will actually draw you closer to me. Do you trust me? And will you follow me? And you watch them wrestle with it. I remember meeting with a student, and we were talking about who Jesus was. We had been in a Bible study together, and they were so struck by Jesus' love, by his compassion, and by his goodness. And then when they would get to the statements, they would talk about Jesus' exclusivity, when Jesus would say, no man can come to the Father except through me. And when the, test, when the early church would testify in Acts, there's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved other than the name of Jesus. This person put down their Bible and said, I don't think I can follow a person like that. I couldn't give myself to someone believing that they were the only way. That just seems egotistical and maniacal. And when we, while we tried multiple different ways to talk about, well, you know, it's a little bit like saying, I don't like gravity because it causes some things I don't want to fall to fall. I mean, it's, it's either true or not true, right? None of the logical arguments made a difference because emotionally, they liked the nice Jesus but couldn't handle the hard edges of Jesus, right? It, it falls the other way as well. Um, Luke 15 tells a story of two brothers uh, who had a very generous father. And the, old, the younger one um, basically says, Father, I can't wait until you're dead to get my inheritance. Could you die now to me so I could get what I'm due? And he takes his money and runs away. And then in the midst of his desperation, in the midst of the brokenness that I suspect we'll be talking about the Life Tree Cafe this coming weekend, he comes crawling back on the father, being that kind of generous father who's prodigal with his love, generous with his love, welcomes his younger son back. And the older father says, I cannot... A older son says, I cannot follow a father who's this generous and kind. And Jesus uses that story to provoke the religious leaders who were very happy with a rigid, carefully controlled, happily listed God who they could go, well, if you just list the 636 commands or so, I can do that. What I can't handle is somebody who's generous and kind and blows my categories out of the water. Right? For all of us, we're often struck by a God who's much more concerned about us being holy than happy. Who wants us to be spiritually healthy even if it costs us our physical health. Who calls us into long-term commitment that for some of us means a day-by-day -day struggle. Right? Whether it's addictions that we face, a difficult relationship that we're called to live in, a difficult life situation, we're called hour by hour to choose to be faithful, even when it would be so easy just to walk away, when so much of our culture would applaud if we would just give in. But at every step in those situations, what Jesus reminds us is, will you accept me on my own terms? I'm the God who calls you to holiness, and I intend to bring you healing. I intend to display my wild mercy, which will offend some of you, and I will call you to the hardest regimen of obedience that you could ever imagine. But I promise to be with you. I promise all of those things and more. But for the disciples, they've just experienced a tremendous turnaround in who they understand Jesus to be and their faith falters in that moment. Why does Jesus 
label them as a perverse and unbelieving generation? I mean, why not a little bit more compassion here, right? I mean, you would think he realizes he's rocked their world. He's completely overturned everything that they could expect about who he is. Well, <clears throat> let's think about what's happened. For the disciples who didn't go up with Jesus on the mountain, um, he's disappeared from their sight for a little while. And they seem unable to do what he's called them to do. I mean, they have seen him do amazing things, and he's commissioned them to do amazing things. But when he disappears from their sight, they seem unable to do anything. And then Jesus comes back and criticizes them because he hasn't been there. If you pay attention, it might make you remember other stories of times when God and God's spokesperson goes up to a mountain, has a revelation of God, comes back and is somewhat disappointed by what he finds back on the ground, right? I do wonder a little bit if when Jesus goes up to the mountain and when the glory of God and Jesus is revealed, when they get a word of instruction from God, right? The clear commandment, just one, listen to him. And when they come off the mountain, find a lack of faith, um, maybe what's happening is we're hearing a little bit of a resonance that Jesus intends when Moses goes up to a mountain, sees the glory of God, if only from God's backside, because he can't quite face God's face, comes back with 10 commandments, not just one, and he comes down to find um, his followers, including Aaron, who should have known better, in their confusion and in the vacuum, decide, we still want to worship God, but it'd be so much easier if we could see him. Let's just make a golden calf together, right? A calf was a symbol of strength, of mightiness, of stability. A calf was uh, essential to the economy of the time. And so they're creating a representation of a very good providing God who's very stable, who's actually physically in front of them at all times because they're a little worried when they can't see him. And uh, I think the disciples may be doing the same thing in Jesus's absence. He's up there having some experience with God. We don't know what's going on there, but since he's not here, we need to fill the vacuum somehow. And I wonder what the vacuum for the disciples could be. There's a suggestion, at least to me, that perhaps the adulation and the spotlight they had while they were casting out demons at the beginning of chapter 9 um, is something that they've kind of enjoyed and grown accustomed to, that they're kind of relying on, right? Because frankly, if I could do magic things, you better believe I would thoroughly enjoy um, the attention of the audience, right? If I could go, voila, right? And all of a sudden, I don't know, a turkey dinner would appear or something. Um, I would begin to enjoy the attention and admiration. And I wonder if that's what's happening for the disciples. Because immediately after the story, Jesus begins to talk about being rejected and how the people will turn on him. And they're going to turn on the disciples as well. <coughs> um, and so... Given that, they need to, they're, given that the disciples fill this void inappropriately, just like the Israelites fill this void inappropriately, Jesus says, look, you perverse and unbelieving generation, which is precisely the words that the Old Testament uses to refer to Israel, explaining why not just after they had an experience of God and were brought up to the border of Canaan, they had to wander around for another 40 years until they finally got enough of Egypt out of, their, out of their system and enough of Yahweh back into their system that they could be his voice and hand and arm and presence in the land of Canaan. So I think Jesus says, 
you people really are like the new Israel. <laughs> in all of its flaws and failures, as well as all of its potential to reveal who I am. And so after chapter 9, you're going to watch Jesus begin another set of journeys with the disciples. Headed off to Jerusalem eventually, but now that they know who Jesus is, he's going to wander around with them a couple more times to show them who he is and who they need to be. To prepare them for the time when he really will be leaving. And they will be responsible to be his hand and his voice and his presence in the world. I think for us, part of the challenge is always going to be like the, the disciples. When Jesus is not visible to us, when the acts of God are not clear to us, instinctively, compulsively, we're going to attempt to replace God with some other thing that will give us comfort or hope. It will come in one of two directions. It may be like the disciples will actually get sucked in to reaching for the very things that give us comfort, security, um, and ego reinforcement that Jesus is going to have to pry from our cold fingers, right? So for the disciples, they just finished an incredibly successful mission tour where they had done all these things. Presumably, people had responded with incredible acclaim, delight, and amazement. And what Jesus seems to be bringing them to here is don't get sucked up by that. They're going to turn on you before this is all over because they're going to reject me. For those of us um, kind of professional ministers, right, um, we know the danger all too well. It's incredibly ego-satisfying to help people, to say good things to them, the good words of Scripture, to be able to pray with them, help them, encourage them. And if we aren't careful, what we begin to realize is so much of our identity and comfort comes from being the good person who prays with people, who cares for people, um, who nurtures people. And particularly if you have communication gifts, then you have the, all of the dangers that come from the narcissism of, I can say what seems to be the most vulnerable things in the world, knowing it's cost me nothing, because I know exactly how to gauge how much I need to share in order to win your trust. And then I'll get your approval in return. But for all of us, right, we all have our own temptations about what drives us to service. Some of us are just faithful servants and while we like to do it behind the scenes, it matters a little too much to us that somebody eventually notices and says, thank you. What a servant you are in doing that every week, week after week, in such an unnoticed way. For others of us, it's the pat on the back. You are so kind and gentle and caring. I'm so thankful for you. Now, none of these are bad things in and of themselves. But the temptation to let that be what drives us is awfully sharp. For others of us, it's not that at all. It's just something more simple. We need something concrete that we could hold on to in the times when we walk through that dark maze, when we feel beset by loneliness or sadness. Um, and it comes in different things for us, right? So last night, I was feeling a little self-pity. I was still working on my sermon. I'm sick. My family is asleep. And so I broke out an entire box of soy wasabi triscuits. They're delicious. They're just greasy enough to be satisfying, but they have the illusion of being whole wheat, so I can vaguely think of them as healthy. 
And if 80% of that box didn't disappear within a 20-minute period while I was diddling around with my sermon, I would be surprised. Because I know my wife will open the box tomorrow as we're packing snacks for the kids and notice they're just the small little bits, crumbs, and shreds that come at the bottom of a Triscuit box in that box. And I'm just grateful I didn't eat something else, right? We all grab onto something. It may be food. It may just be, I'm going to work a couple more hours because if I had a couple more dollars in my retirement plan, my savings plan, or my checking account, I wouldn't feel so lost in this dark maze. For others of us, it's a compulsive way that we relate to other people, right? As long as that person's in my life, I'm going to be okay. <clears throat> what strikes me about Jesus is that he looks at the disciples, right, in all of their flaws and failures, right? The disciples are having a crisis of faith. They don't really know who he is, and they aren't sure they want to proclaim this message with any fervor anymore. And really, the old message was perfectly satisfying because they got a lot of ego satisfaction out of it, a lot of approval for it. And they're realizing Jesus is calling them to something different, which is, I'm going to be who I am. I am who I am in the language of the Old Testament. And so proclaim my message. Be my ambassadors. Live the life that I'm demonstrating for you. And if that disappoints you, that's too bad because that's who I am. I am going to be who I am, Jesus seems to say to them. And then he demonstrates it, right? He says to the man, bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Do you notice what Jesus does here? He actually reenacts in almost a single fell swoop every other miracle that he's done in the prior sections of Luke. Just to remind the disciples that same Jesus is the same person you see here and so much more. Right? He defeats the power of evil by casting out the demon. He heals the boy of this sickness, restoring his physical life. He reinstates him into a family and brings wholeness to the social structures that were so tattered by this experience of evil. And everyone responds with the worship and praise of God. And if that isn't a great summary of what Jesus does through the vast majority of the Gospels, right? Defeating the powers of evil, knitting together a broken creation, restoring broken social systems, and evoking the praise of God. As part of the goal to which he pushes, I can think a few better sentences that sum it up so nicely. Jesus reminds them, look, nothing has changed and everything has changed, but focus on me. Focus on who I declare myself to be and who God confirms me to be. Focus on where we are going and where I know we will be headed. Focus on what I am saying and I'm doing because soon enough, you perverse and unbelieving generation, the time will be over and I'll be gone. And then it really will be in your hands. <clears throat> and that's maybe why <coughs> on a regular basis you have to come back to the communion table. Because once a month, on a regular basis, you stop with who you would like Jesus to be. And you are forced and confronted by who Jesus declared himself to be and how he wanted us to remember him. Right? You're forced to come to the communion table where he reminds you, you are sinners and broken, desperately in need of healing. And what Jesus says is, take heart, I've been broken for you. And in my brokenness, you will find healing and forgiveness, restoration and hope, right? We come to him and we're confronted not just by our goodness or our cheerfulness or our servant-heartedness, but by, um, as the words of the hymn put it, right, our, pro well, they didn't put it this way, our propensity to wander, 
our inexplicable desire to choose something other than God, and our um, insensitivity to the ways that he speaks. And he then offers you the cup and says, look, there's a new covenant I'm making with you. With my blood, I will take that heart of flesh and give you a heart of stone. I will actually fill you with my living spirit till one day you will begin to naturally desire the things that I desire. You will actually look more and more like Jesus to a world that needs to see him. And that together as we take this communion, we bind ourselves not just to God, but to one another and to the church scattered around the world and throughout time that consistently and painfully, thoroughly, and hopefully year after year, century after century proclaims, this is my God, Jesus Christ who died in my place and on my behalf and who rose again. And we experience the forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of the resurrection of the body and of the life everlasting. And so we come to communion so that we disabuse ourselves of the accretions of who Jesus is and remind us of who he tells us he is. And then in that way, at least in part, we obey what God said to the disciples last week as Dick reminded us. This is my son. So listen to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, more than anything else, we need to see you and we need to meet you. So would you open our eyes so that we could see Jesus? Because in him is life and life everlasting. In him is hope. We feel hopeless. In him is the healing that we in our world need. So allow us to come, Lord, um, so that we can see you and that we can celebrate with the church around the world your goodness and your mercy, your holiness and your justice your grace and your love. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.